unmistakable type of statements where the things in the story have a very clear and distinct significant analogy or meaning or symbolism. Uh, this is Jesus' parables. Uh, here we have uh, this morning the parable of the weeds. In verse 24, it picks up where Jesus mentions uh, the man who went out and sowed good seed in a field. And the thing about parables is that they're secretive. There's many who did not understand the meaning or even hear the meaning of these parables. And you and I, to see this, are in a privileged position at this moment to realize that the interpretation or the meaning of these parables are not just freely given. And of course, many could always open up the scriptures and just interpret them and find out what Jesus was saying. But really the issue is the inner ear to desire or care for what these parables mean. To actually believe that Jesus is Lord and that his wisdom is more important than anything. Being able to read the stock market, being able to read any other piece of wisdom that could better your life, this is it. This is the meaning of it all as Jesus explains his kingdom. So here we have in Matthew 13, 24, he says this. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servant of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in the field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go out and gather them? And he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into barns. Skipping down, we hear in verse 34 how Jesus goes on to explain. All these things Jesus said to the crowds were in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken. And he quotes Psalm 78, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And he closes by saying, He who has an ear, let him hear this parable that he speaks. And so you find there that Jesus gives the interpretation very clearly. It's, it's not hard to understand what was just said. He makes almost a perfect one-to-one correspondence behind the symbols and what he was saying. You also find that the crowds were not able to understand that. That the interpretation actually wasn't given to the larger portion of people. Everything in this parable has to do uh, with timing. The reason Jesus was rejected so is because of a misunderstanding of timing. It's like um, when, when we worship, even just now this morning with music, if there is a bad tempo or if they're off beat with the bass, it shows, right? But they're not. And so the song moves and then we feel like we can participate because the timing is right. I mean, good timing and bad timing is the difference between so many things, right? If you have a, a good meal, if, if you don't prepare it all well, you're going to a restaurant and you're going to have uh, very cold vegetables and a burnt steak, right? If you don't have the timing working together to bring all things together at one point of unity, timing matters. The difference between uh, a good joke and a bad joke, which I know the feeling of how those work, is... That was awkward. Timing. See? Look at that. It worked. I planned that. I didn't know if it was going to laugh. You laughed, so I proved my point. I paused long enough. It was awkward. Why is he having a stroke? No, I'm timing my joke. And it was hilarious. Um, but timing matters, of course, you know. Now, see, the thing with, the thing with um, Jesus is his ministry is on a different time scale that no one in his generation anticipated. And that is, in, I'd say, large part why he was rejected. They were looking for him to do everything within a certain period of time. And in these parables, Jesus goes only to his unique disciples and explains to them, this is my timing. And that's the parable of these weeds. The problem of timing, if you remember, as we've walked through this sermon series, there is the moment where the scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, we wish to see a sign from you. Right after he healed a demon-possessed man and other people were relieved from stress and heartache and turmoil. And we would think, because we are not, let's be honest, as evangelical Christians, most of us don't know the Old Testament very well at all, right? We would think, well, that's good enough. The guy healed a a blind man, he's probably pretty important. But see, they were looking for all of the prophecies of the old. And it could be that when they say, show us a sign, they're saying, your miracles are not enough for us. We want to see a sign from you. That is, we want to see you have rule and dominion as the king that is to come. Right now, you have exercised no actual dominion over the Roman Empire or anybody. So we need a sign from you. And in response to that, Jesus says that no sign will be given them except the sign of the Son of Man. And he rebukes them particularly to say this. He says, the queen of the south, a woman from the Negev in the Old Testament, traveled a great distance to hear the wisdom of Solomon. 
and someone greater than Solomon is here, referring to himself. Now we're told in 1 Kings 4, 32, that Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs. The word there in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is parabole. He spoke 3,000 parables, you see. And the Hebrew word is mashal. And right after Jesus rebukes them for not discerning his wisdom, he begins to go and speak parables, parables, proverbs, because he's demonstrating, I am greater than Solomon. I have it all figured out from the beginning to the end. I am the Lord. The word to rule and reign in Hebrew is mashal. The word for proverb or parable is mashal. The one who has the wisdom to rule with prudence and integrity and knowledge of the whole domain to be a a just king. We do not want a foolish president. We do not want a foolish king. It is a judgment upon God to give us fools over us. The Jewish conception of a king is someone who has wisdom, like Solomon, who can speak parables, who can cut to the depths of the nature of things and know, and therefore be a right judge or governor. And Jesus is demonstrating that to himself, to say, I am the one with the parables. I am the one that can lay out the whole course of human history by analogy. And make it so simple that even a six-year-old could understand. And so he speaks these parables. And it's all about timing. And the reason he's saying no one is understanding what he's saying. Is they do not understand the timing of the kingdom of God. There's an episode of peculiar timing. That actually occurred in Jesus' life. It's the timing of Jesus and another man named Josephus. Jesus and Josephus. Their timelines overlap by just, just a hair. Jesus, as best as historians can put together, was crucified in 33 AD. Josephus, a upper class Jewish man, was born in Jerusalem in 32 AD, is the best estimation historians have. That is to say, to put this in a timeline, To talk about timing. There is a man named Josephus who was born in the city of Jerusalem. And there was a man named Jesus only a year later who was crowned king of the Jews in Jerusalem with a crown of thorns and then condemned to be crucified and killed. The reason this is so remarkable when we talk about the timing of the kingdom of God is that Josephus only a few years later given his status and ability within the Israeli government that was oppressed by Rome, rose to a position to lead a Galilean division of troops to fight against the Romans in what was called the First Jewish Revolt, a time from 66 to 73 AD. It is a time in which the Jews brought all of their political and military power together to try to throw Rome off their back and to finally be free. Now what's amazing about Josephus, and he's given to us through history, is that he was also a very intelligent man, an intellectual man. He lost that battle. 
he surrendered to the Romans, and he was very good with words and smart, and they used him as a Jewish translator. They didn't kill him. They didn't imprison him. He actually rose in the ranks of the Roman government and actually became one of the best friends to the son of the emperor Vespasian. He was one of the best friends to Titus. He was within the very centers of Roman political power. And what we are given because of that is remarkable writings that he has left for us. One which is called A History of the Jewish Wars. I say all that to say this. We don't know what the expectation of the Messiah should have been in the first century. We don't know in great detail why Jesus was particularly rejected. We don't know in great detail what exact sign they were asking of him. Why his miracles and other healings were not enough. But we do know a man named Josephus who lived in the time of Jesus Christ. Who led a military expedition to fight against the Romans and then became a Roman citizen himself who wrote a Jewish history of that particular window of time in which Jesus lived. And he says in his writing, What most elevated the Jews to undertake this war, the reason to fight against Rome, was an ambiguous oracle that was also found in their sacred writings. How? About that time that is in the first century, the time that Jesus was around, One from their country should become the governor of all the habitable world. So you see Josephus, who is actually leading the war against Rome, explains why they were doing it. It's because they thought that somebody was supposed to rule the world from their nation and from their generation. And so when Jesus is going around doing his ministry, they say to him, where's the ruling the world part? And so as he's being killed, Josephus is being raised to lead a different type of messianic movement. One which results in hundreds of thousands of Jewish people being killed and no kingdom of God, the destruction of the temple and the annihilation of everything that was Jewish. And so here we are in the 21st century saying, now who was the real Messiah? Because most of you have never heard of Josephus. But we're all here because of Jesus. Right timing and having that wisdom to know is what Jesus is saying here. If they would have understood this parable, they all wouldn't have died in war with Rome. Because God was not in it. The kingdom of heaven... Jesus says, it is like a man who sowed good seed in a field. And while men were sleeping, an enemy came and sowed weeds. When the plants came up, it looked as though the grain and the weeds were together. Now the servant asked him particularly, do you want me to rip out these weeds? And Jesus' response is, of course, no. The servant says, didn't you sow good seed here? And Jesus responds, the Son of Man says, yes, I did. But an enemy has done this. It's a matter of wisdom that he brings it all together as a coherent reason and says, let them both grow together until the harvest. When the harvest comes, you gather all the weeds, you bundle them together, you bind them together, and you burn them together. 
And then you take the wheat and bring it into my storehouse, into my barn. The reason we're told that they grow together is because of the growth. God is interested in the growth. It's all about the timing. See, it's not just about Jesus coming to take over the world. It's Jesus coming to take over the world, but through some method of growth. The reason the weeds could not be pulled up, Jesus said, the master says in this parable, is because the wheat has to grow. If you pull the weeds up, you'll pull the wheat up. If you pull the wheat up, the wheat won't grow. There's something about the growth of the wheat. There's something here, there's something we're doing now within this struggle of life, cancer, death, sickness, frustrations, traffic, alarm clocks, hunger, thirst, fatigue. It's, that's, we, he's not taking us out of that. He's growing you through that. There's something that he's doing with you here that he's not even making the kingdom of God evidently clear. It is not evident right now, even in this room, who really is in the kingdom of God and who really is in the kingdom of Satan because we all look the same. But there's something he's doing inside the wheat that they will shine like the sun when it is all over. And that growth is necessary. This is what Jesus calls the mystery of the kingdom. All things he said to them in parables. To the crowd, he spoke to them only in parables, we're told. And then only after the crowd left, Jesus returns home. And then his disciples come to him and say, Now, could you explain that to us? Could you give us the wisdom to know your timing of these events? And he lays out a very clear one-to-one correspondence. He says that the sower of the good seed is the Son of Man, saying that is myself. Jesus speaks to you, and you come alive. Right? Jesus speaks. No one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and whoever the Son chooses to reveal Him. You have no life apart from the Son. You cannot... Be a child of God unless Jesus Christ speaks to you. He has to draw seed upon you. He has to bring the gospel of the kingdom, the call of the kingdom, the gospel. has to come to you in power, in internal ways, spiritual calling that regenerates your soul and makes you something different. Brings you to spring a life out of the dead soil into being an actual fruitful piece of organic material for God. A wheat, not a weed. And this is who Jesus is. He is the sower who makes this happen. He says clearly, the field is the world. The good seed, the result of Jesus' work, are the sons of the kingdom. Those who are the sons of righteousness. Righteousness. The kingdom of righteousness. You have to be righteous to be in the kingdom of righteousness. Flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of righteousness, Jesus says. You must be born again. Outside of being born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of righteousness. These are the sons of the kingdom. These are the ones whose genetics, spiritual genetics, are in accord with the king of the kingdom. You must be in that lineage. You must be a son. You must be like the father who rules the kingdom to be part of this kingdom. And the weeds are the sons of the evil one. The one who sows them particularly, the enemy is the devil. The timing here, the harvest, is the end of the age. 
And of course, the reapers, Jesus says, are the angels. And he connects all of these pieces together and lays them out in a coherent fashion to say that the Son of Man will send his angels. Those angels will go out and gather out of the kingdom all causes of sin and lawlessness. And he will throw all of them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The final judgment in eternal state. And then the righteous ones, the sons of the righteous one, will shine like the sun. Will be distinct. Be glorified. Be justified. Everything you said about Jesus. Everything you believe in Jesus. You trusted in him for his glory and resurrection. And you will be made like him. When you see him, you will be made like him. For you will see him as he truly is. And your evident faith that is inside, hidden in jars of clay, hidden from the world, looking no different on the outside, will burst forth through your body. And you will be glorified, the scriptures say. You will shine like the sun. The inner righteousness and glory and dignity and honor and praise and every good thing that God has deposited in you by the Holy Spirit will break out. Through your fingertips and eyes and toes. You will be glorified. You will be distinct. You will be holy in absolute truth. You will be justified in actual justification. Not just positional justification in which you're righteous now because he declares you righteous. But you will also be righteous in action, word, and deed. In every moment. Incapable of ever sinning again. You have a body that can take in the holy presence of God. You may enter into the new Jerusalem. You may enter into the Zion above. And your body will not be incinerated as if it entered a nuclear plant. You will be able to be in the presence of God. And he lays it all out to say, I am the king. I can speak these parables. And I know the beginning from the end. But he only gives this to those who want to know. The crowds never heard any of this. And so Jesus spoke the gospel of the kingdom. It is the word of Jesus that brings life. Now these good seeds, as we say, the sons of the kingdom. 1 Peter 1.23 says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Words, the last parable, the sower of the seeds, the words of the kingdom go out, falls on different soils, has effect on good soil, no effect on the rocks, no effect on the thorns, no effect on the path. But the speaking of the gospel, the seeds go out. And if that hits you by the Holy Spirit, it germinates, it regenerates within you. You have been born, First Peter says, above You've been born again, not with a perishable seed, but an imperishable seed through a living and abiding word of God. The same word that speaks the end of the world into the new age is the same word that speaks you into new life now. And if that word is not spoken you now, you have no chance at the end of the age. The field, he says, is the world. The word world is cosmos. It has particularly two unique meanings. It could mean everything that's ever been created in all of the created universe Or it sometimes refers to human society, all of human societies, the world. Either way, it's extensive, it's broad, it's expansive. The whole world is this field. So when you have the mental image of this parable, and you put it upon your mind, and you have this, maybe this layout of a field, that is the analogy of everything. All of human existence, or at least all of even the created world. I particularly think, 
it's helpful to think of it all as the created world. Everything, heavens and earth, moles and mountains, and men too. Everything, cows and grass, skyscrapers and rivers. Everything is within this cosmos. The weeds are, he says, the sons of the evil one. And they don't belong, as you see. Now see, this is the question. If Jesus is king, and this is the point they lay to him, where's your sign? Demonstrate it. Call down fire from heaven. Do something. Because if you really are king, what's with all the rebels? If you really are king, how can you tolerate so much mutiny, so much subversion? What kind of kingdom or domain or sovereign rule actually exercises no dominion or sovereign rule? Show us that you're king. Demonstrate it. And Jesus pauses and says, Well, there are weeds, but I am letting them stay. Do you realize that in the context of the gospel? The gospel is not, maybe you should give Jesus a try because he's lonely and doesn't have any friends. The gospel is, you don't belong here and you're on borrowed time. You are a weed in the Father's kingdom. Repent. And trust in Christ. We all are these weeds. You all were dead in your trespasses and sins. We're all sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2 says. We are sons of the evil one. We do not belong here. Particularly Matthew 12, just the chapter before this. Jesus went to say... Either make the tree good and its fruit is good, or make the tree bad and its fruit are bad. You'll know a tree by its fruit. A good person produces good treasure from what was inside, and a bad person will produce evil from the evil treasure inside. That is to say, he says all that in Matthew 12, then he goes on to talk about the field. He says, so think about that um, tree-like, fruit-like, agrarian analogy, and now I'm going to go start talking about seeds and fields and wheat and weeds. And you draw the connection to say, Oh my goodness, that's me. That's me. Like, I mean, I'm pointing at myself right now. That's me. That's you. That's me. We don't produce good fruit. None of us are the wheat in this story, apart from God's gracious intervention. Right? We look at that and say, oh yes, the weeds, I know who those people are, not me. No, before any of this, we never produce one piece of good fruit that could ever bring any praise to God in heaven. Not one thing from your life, not one thought, not one word. Anything done outside of faith is sin. You've borrowed every oxygen breath from him. You've used it in so many ways to do so many good things, but never in praise to the one who gave it to you. You've stolen everything and offered it for good so that you could praise your own self. Because apart from repenting and trusting in the righteousness of Christ, everything we do is self-righteousness. And all of our self-righteousness is filthy rags. And everything we've done has been sin. Our best works, our most prized fruits from our life are sin apart from Jesus Christ. We have no claim to anything. And if we do anything without reference or footnote to him, it is robbery. All we can produce is thorns and poisonous fruit. And so here he says, I will make a field of wheat for myself. I will make a field of wheat. I will make a good tree good. I will make a bad tree good. 
And the day of judgment, he says, we'll have to give an account for all of this. So they look like they belong. We say these weeds do not belong. The point of the story that we miss here, perhaps, is that they look like they do belong. So Jesus is using an analogy that would have been very well known. There's actually on the books, as we know from history, a law in Roman law against sowing weeds in another person's field. You'd think that's a very detailed thing to have a law against. Didn't know anyone would really have an idea to do that. But back then, of course, when you have an enemy or someone you are hostile toward, it was so common that people would take a particular weed called dernel that looks just like wheat or basil. And they would take the seeds and go over to their neighbor's field at night and just litter the field with darnell. And about a month later, the sprouts would come and they would look just like wheat. Even months down the road, even in their mature version, they look like wheat. And they're poisonous. If you eat so much of it, you'll get sickly dead. You'll deadly sick. Right? Timing. Oh, jeez. the time. Yeah, the timing of those words right would have been better. So you see what Jesus just said? These weeds look just like the wheat. They're entirely different than the wheat. He's using this to say, this is the poison. An enemy has come and sown this into my world. That first cultivated garden, the beginning of the scriptures, where did that tree come from? God permitted it, a tree of a knowledge of good and evil. It looked, Eve says, it looked good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirous to make one wise. And that tree in the center of God's first garden was poison. It was death. It was darnell. It was a weed. It was something that was for not them to consume. The whole point of this is predicated on the fact that God defined one plant there as a weed. Everything else was fruit to be eaten. And that is what cause the fall of the world. Ezekiel says that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. You see, we have fallen. Our fathers have fallen. They have eaten of the tree and we suffer with rigid teeth that gnash together like the gnashing of the fires of hell that Jesus speaks of. That we are set on edge. We are corrupted. We are corroded. All because of eating sour grapes, a poisonous tree, or weeds that are poisonous darnell. The field, Jesus clearly says, is the world. And opening it back to this, we find that that is everything. So if we think that there is this thing called the church, and Jesus is particularly interested in the church... And we really only care what Jesus has to say to the church. And we want to obey Jesus as a church... We miss this parable entirely. For the field is the world. And then it goes on in verse 41 to say, the angels will gather out of the kingdom all the weeds. Now, if they're gathering out of the kingdom all the weeds, what exactly is it that they're gathering from the weeds? They're gathering out of the field. So to say, the field is the world, and the field is the kingdom. Therefore, the world is the kingdom. Therefore, Jesus is king over everything. Jesus' conception of kingship is not a unique jurisdiction given to only the wheat that like to listen to his words. 
Jesus is king over the church and civil government. Jesus is king over the Elks Club. Jesus is king over traffic light. Jesus is king over everything. Jesus' dominion is to be exercised and the purview of his word brought in every sphere of life because the field is the world and the field is the kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is this world. And if we ever forget that, if we ever divide that or dissect that and think, well, that's just, well, you're not a Christian, so it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. You didn't vote for him to be king. He is king of this world. This is the wisdom of the gospel of the hidden weeds. Now, the timing of all this is very important, coming to the point of it all. The timing, he mentions, is the harvest. And the harvest is the end of the age. We enter into this realm of what is the timing of all this? The end of the age is this expression by the Jews that have to do with crisis that brings about a new world era. It's simple as that. The general principle is the end of the age. We would say perhaps if we had a revolutionary war for America, that revolutionary war was a crisis. It was a place of decision, of judgment, in which a lot of bad things happened. And it was the uh, birth pains of a nation. And we are in this American experiment as a result of that crisis. The end of the British age in America closed. And the American age opened. And you could have had your foot in both ages if you were in the revolutionary era. The end of the age and the inauguration or beginning of a new age, right? And the way... Jewish theology works, and the way the scriptures speak is that they thought of this stuff all the time. When is the end of the age? When is the new thing to happen? When is the reign of the Messiah to come? When are all the prophecies and promises and blessings of Isaiah to come down upon us and fall on our heads? When are we to live to be hundreds of years old again? When are we to never have to worry about all these things and everyone sits under their vine and eats from their branches and the Solomonic blessing of economic prosperity and more fruit and the, the, the mountains bring forth wine and the uh, honey and the, and the milk of the cattle and all the, the, the land just give its fullness and we enter into this idyllic utopian type of age they look for. And Jesus answers that to say, let me explain the timing of this all. Because if you're looking for me to give you milk and honey and everything to happen with roses and perfection, you will be misinterpreting and you will be not happy with me at all. Let me explain the timing. The end of the age is when this happens. In Matthew 12, right before this, is the first time Jesus even uses this and accepts this way of thinking. They blaspheme against the Holy Spirit and he warns them, whoever speaks against the Son of Man may be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And then he says, either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus stands in history as he was in the first century and says, right now as you see me as an unglorified Messiah, the son of a carpenter, you might be forgiven for misunderstanding me. In this age, if you would resist the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven. And even in the next age, because the age that was coming after Jesus was his resurrection, ascension, and descension of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost. The age of the Spirit was to come because of what he won for us on the cross. And he's saying, even in that age, if you are hostile to the Holy Spirit in this age, you will have no friend in that age. If you reject him here, you will reject him there. If you cannot be forgiven now in this age, you will not be forgiven for rejecting the Holy Spirit in the next age. 
Because the age you're going to is the age of the Holy Spirit. The whole point of his timing and the prophecy is to be surprised by the presence of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life and its purpose here for bringing in the consummation and the maturation of all the wheat in the field. Jesus did not want to bring the reaper then. He did not want to end it in the first century. He wanted 2022. He wants 2023. And whenever he puts the end of that calendar, it will be because the wheat is full. But he must bring that growth. That is part of his plan. These things, Paul says in Ephesians 1, he made known to us the mystery. This was a secret. No one understood it this way. It was a mystery of his will. Until the plan of the fullness of time, Paul says in Ephesians 1.9. He goes on to say in Ephesians 1.21, He raised us from the dead, seated us at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only, Paul says, in this age, but in the age to come. That is, Jesus' exaltation. We went up there with him. We were seated with him by union of the Holy Spirit. That his righteousness is our righteousness. His resurrection is our resurrection. His life is our life. So that... He would be above every name that is ever named, not only in this age, Paul's present first century context, but in the age to come. And so he ties it all together here in the parable to say that is the harvest, the end of the age to come in which he will wrap it all up. But first he must be resurrected and the spirit must come down because there is much wheat to grow. We are in that process. You and I, think of this as a church. We are in this particular process of understanding the difference between a sprint and a marathon. We must know the difference between a battle and a war. Jesus has a long plan, and we are down here for that purpose. That there must be growth. And so he ends it all by bringing in the references from Old Testament passages that the judgment was always intended this way. Joel 3, put a sickle to the harvest for his ripe, and that's God's judgment. Isaiah 17, the reaper gathers the standing grain and the harvest and ears and gleans them and whacks them all down. This final age, this judgment, the reaping, has always been the Old Testament reference for the final day of the Lord. And so Jesus tucks it in right there to say once the wheat has grown, once the church has done its job, once the gospel has reached every area of life that Jesus would so be satisfied to define what that means, then we'll be done. Until then, you and I see. Do we? We hear? Do we? Because he ends by saying, he who has an ear, let him hear. The wisdom or the ability to understand this means to leave the crowd, identify as a disciple, and follow Jesus Christ. The last of it all is, the promise given That the kingdom of Jesus Christ at this moment is a kingdom of mercy and peace. And that time is definitive. For he will demonstrate his kingdom in power and glory. But he is the king of weeds. As Josephus was born, maybe one or two years old, in that same city that he was a baby. There was a man of Jesus of Nazareth who stood before Pontius Pilate. And the governor 
The Roman governor himself asked him, are you king of the Jews? And he said, sure, as you say it is. And they condemned him to death. And we're told in Matthew 27, 29, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, oh hell, king of the Jews. You see, he took the weeds and put them on his own head. The very symbol of rebellious creation, fruitless creation, pointy little thorns digging into his skull, producing no fruit, no food, no comfort. Do you see, he took everything that is you and I, identified that as the garland of grace, his kingly head, that that was his throne, that that was his crown. That he chooses to bring his kingdom in and to be coronated with a twisted garland of weeds. And to die on the cross with no glory, no dignity, no victory, no dominion. It's all about timing. He had to die that way. Because you and I are those thorns that pierce his mind. Our sins in his great kingdom that he tolerates day and day. Do you not know that God's patience should lead you toward repentance? And here we are. He's never going to wear that crown again. Now is the time. Now is the age. There is an age to come. But this is the age in which we preach Jesus Christ crucified. And that all could repent now and be reconciled to him in perfect peace and righteousness. And his mercy and love extends to the nth degree that he would be identified with you even within the weeds and the thorns of this life and our sin. Dear Father God, we pray that you would drive this deep to our hearts, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you have promised to be with us in every age. And Lord, we thank you for the grace that you have given in identifying with me with those here, all who call upon the name of Jesus, to say that our sin, our weeds, our thorns were on that cross. Lord, now we ask, Lord, that you would make us fruitful trees, fruitful wheat, that the fruits of our life, the fruit of our lips, what we say, think, and speak, would be pleasing to you and glorifying to your name, that we submit our lives out of joy, seeing you resurrected, seeing you on that cross, that you are worthy of it all. That you are worthy of it all. We freely give it all the way to you, Lord. You are worthy of everything. Oh, Father. Oh, Lord, bring your kingdom. Oh, Lord, let it rule and reign with glory. Father, we pray that you would reach the lost. Lord, we pray that you would bring many into your storehouse. Many into your barn, Father. We understand you can do this all. And we thank you and praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand?